If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm your host, Clayton Weir. I have my guest, Mike Siegel here, um, who is, I would characterize as sort of a serial entrepreneur, a serial venture capitalist, and um, almost bizarrely now a not-for-profit evangelist of a arcane and obscure technical standard that's going to bring uh, society towards payments nirvana and then actually that <laughs> uh, being the founder of the non a nonprofit to solely uh, back to that mission was i thought a more than unique uh, enough reason to have him on the show and invite him uh thanks uh mike for coming on the show um do you want to fill in any holes on on your background my pleasure clay thanks for inviting me um well you you touched on a couple of it i'm a, i'm a six-time entrepreneur and I've had a few exits and a few few failures. Um, I was sort of introduced to the world of payments and fintech back in 2009, uh, where I did some work helping Swift to create a, a program and a platform designed to introduce uh, their member banks to emerging fintech companies. That was called Inatribe. Uh, I became from there a venture capitalist focused in on early stage fintech. Uh, and between 2016 and 2018, my partner and I did about uh, 80, 85 investments in early stage companies around the world. Um, and around the same time, and as part of that venture program, uh, we got in the habit of helping banks and insurers think about innovation and investment and engaging with the early stage ecosystem. Uh, and, and helping them to sort of improve their operational excellence around bringing new products to market. And so is that is the kind of that was the genesis of what kind of became this uh, 20... 2022 labs? Well, uh, yeah, in part, I was doing some work for um, the, the folks at Payments Canada, one of the national payments rails, and they knew that large investments needed to go into um, the transformation to adopt real-time rail and, and, and tw ISO 20022. But their observation, which I think was, was pretty forward thinking, was that um, you know, outside of the banks and the payment rail, you, the corporate users, the end users of payments and of banking needed to understand why this new technology was interesting. So they helped seed 2022 Labs as a way of creating a market-driven uh, um, or a demand-driven approach to understanding why someone needed a new payment rail. And in some ways, this is almost like what you would do if you were the telecom industry, right? And so you you're going to have this new pipe three years from now. It's complete, you know, it's 5G. It's completely useless unless there's handsets and routers and applications it, that need this bandwidth. You have to go and start that work before you set the towers up. It, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you, if you think about whether it's, um, you know, 
fax machines or, or, you know, VCR and Betamax, any of these standards that have come to market in the past, um, they get to be successful when the demand side of the equation understands why they should care. Otherwise, supporting, you know, a new standard, a new infrastructure to the existing industry feels like a, a compliance tax. Right. And when you don't go ahead. I was just going to say, no, that, that totally makes sense. I didn't mean to interject you in the second point, but that I mean, that, and that's that's a hard thing to do. So I guess the question was, that's going to be, so if I am, you know, if I'm just a person on the street or if I'm a corporate treasurer or whomever these stakeholders are, as you said, nobody knows that they want this, um, you know, standardized payment rail, but they probably want some of the things that are going to happen once we have it. I just wondered if you could maybe characterize those, right? The the manifestations of, of how people's lives get better once this exists. Well, yeah, for, for an end corporate, one of the, the easiest ways to think about the value that, that this creates is automating reconciliation, right? If you think about it, B2B payments today is still mostly checks, which means there's paper involved that has to be reconciled to that other piece of paper, the, the invoice or the bill. And so with this new infrastructure, right, a, a rail that will carry not just the payment data, but the data about the payment, the invoice number, the bill, the whatever it is, now you can automate the systems that move these payments around or that cause the need for payments to be moved, right? How does the CRM system connect to the, the treasury management system, connect to the payments hub? Okay, and now the thing goes out as a payment to the, to the rail. So and, and then- go ahead. I was saying, in some ways, the I mean, the check is actually a really great example. So the check actually did a pretty good job of coming with its own context, right? In some ways, it did a way better job than all the first wave electronic payments because it comes yeah. in the envelope with a stub and says, "Hey, you know, Mike, this is a thousand dollars. It's about this invoice that you sent me. You should recognize the number." And there was a PO, and it, you know, it has those things printed on the bottom that make it well, a little if, bit easier. If- still manual. It, yeah, if content. you could fit it into that little memo field. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But as as business has progressed, the amount of information about the payment has exploded, whereas the yeah. payment infrastructure has remained, you know, in, in many ways the same as it's been for the last 40 or 50 years. And that's the big idea here is that we're building a bank to bank and ultimately a corporate to bank to bank to corporate or whether it's people on either end way to transmit that kind of context along with the money a hundred percent a hundred percent i mean you know one of the one of the interesting use cases which i like to think about it actually comes from one of the startups i invested in but there are many other folks doing this um is if you are a salesperson in a large company right and in your crm system you you're tracking that interaction with that customer. But in the CRM system, you don't actually know if that customer historically has been a good payer or not. So you're sitting there, you're making the phone call and you're trying to get the sale. And then maybe someone in accounts receivable says, oh yeah, yeah, we've sold a lot of stuff to that guy on credit and they've sucked, right? We don't get paid, which means guess what sales guy, you're not getting your commission. So having the data about the payment's history actually embedded in the CRM record, now all of a sudden, 
you're using payments data to do something that you never could do before, which is give real detailed insight to the sales guy. And if you play it out to the nth degree, you could potentially then start to network that context together with other organizations and have an even clearer picture of have a, almost a real time sort of credit judgment on and on trade credit for any given company. Sure, right? And there are there are trade credit bureaus that do that, but they're you know all of these sequences, all these silos of information, they don't really talk to each other. They they are separated by you know an email or a PDF or or something you know or, or or someone printing something out and handing it to a colleague and the idea of 2022 is that it can you know ex- extend you know in a structured way to capture all of this information it actually you know makes the payment rail a corporate communications tool on that no and i think before we kind of transition into your big idea do you want to maybe just for those who people who aren't as familiar with this and maybe just think of it as a standard sort of payment message. Um, can you maybe talk about some of the other types of communication or some of the things that are really unique to these modern um, 2022 payment systems that, that we might not have thought of a payments network being able to do historically? Sure. Um, so, so one piece Right. And, and uh, forewarning, right. I am not a technical payments expert. You probably have a lot more depth than I do. So correct me if I get anything wrong here, but I want to, I want to give, paint a picture. Um, The first thing is when you think about all the kinds of payments out there, right, there's, there's um, ACH and there's checks and there's credit card payments and there's wires and there's all these things. For the most part, they all have different formats. And so the first thing that 2022 does is it harmonizes, right? It can be used across any of those payment uh, methods so that you have a single format, a single structure to rule them all. That's one. The second thing is in most of those formats, a lot of the data about the payee or the payor, as well as the, the, um, uh, the context, if any, is largely unstructured. 2022 is a XML-based format that pulls apart all the data that uh, in those messages and creates a structure around them. So you know when a city is a city and a state is a state and an amount is an amount. And it's so it's not just a jumble of characters. It's well-structured like modern computer code. And then the third piece is that it is extensible in a standard format. So I can could, if I wanted to, attach an invoice or I can represent a bill of materials that is associated with a payment actually in the payment network itself. Um, and by doing that, it not only allows you to do payments the way that we've already thought about them. I'm going to initiate a payment to point X. I can send a message along the network, which is a request for payment. So that the context is there even before the payment is there. So it's a way to do electronic bill presentment and payment. So harmonize the structure of payments across different rails. Structure the payment information itself. Add rich structured context. And finally, you can 
now use that capability, not just to send a payment for clearing and settlement, but you can send messages related to the payment along the same rail. I think that's a a really great encapsulation of that. And I mean, just even the idea that there would be bi-directional communication across the payment clearing infrastructure is really a quantum leap from what is very one-directional, I think, in the legacy systems. But in, in some ways, what I think this the analog is like when you put your you know kind of broader valley area vc hat on i mean in some ways what you described is like similar to some of the backbones of the internet right in a kind of tcp ip you know the protocols and the way that kind of you know uh html and all that stuff just became a platform for innovation because it became this kind of well understood extensible model for two-way communication and in a certain context I love that you said that. So the labs, right, the organization that I I put together, we're trying to help, you know, the world understand that data-rich payments is a platform for innovation and growth, right? So you you, you nailed, you you absolutely nailed it. it. It turns payments into a packet network. I don't want to put you on the spot with this, but even just order of magnitude, like what strikes me when we're, you know, when people kind of gather around the bar and, and uh, you get a bunch of fintech entrepreneurs and they kind of start, you know, beating up the legacy payment network and ACH and all stuff. I mean, at the end of the day, it's 50 year old piece of technology that was it, itself in its own way, despite its limitations, has been an amazing platform for innovation, you know. Um, Zelle and uh, and PayPal and all these things are built on it and run on it, right? Their value mm-hmm. proposition is just like creating a, a a a better user experience, an on ramp and an off ramp for regular people. The value creation of those things is massive. I think because this platform is better, the potential for like value creation is bigger. But do you even have that? Like, is it? order of magnitude like are we talking like trillions of dollars of kind of enterprise value that you think could be created by entrepreneurs and incumbents like innovating on top of this platform absolutely so um you got to think about it in a couple of ways the first one is to recognize that the payments network and for that matter the payments industry has existed almost entirely apart from the corporate business process facilitation industry, right? ERP and and treasury management tools and all of that. So you've got these two massive industries that this capability brings together. So if you were to look, um, Goldman Sachs did some research, uh, I think it was in 2019, and their estimation that was the um, efficiencies technology creates about a trillion dollar opportunity but on its own across payment processing working capital and um, ap and ar software and services and that doesn't begin to approach the corporate efficiencies that will be created through those tools which they they estimated about 1.5 1.5 trillion a year in productivity savings just for small businesses. So that is a massive untouched opportunity. If you want to look at it from the top down standpoint, 
there's, uh, if I'm remembering my numbers, something like 150, no, sorry, 120 trillion in B2B payments every year. So the payment industry takes part of that as a margin. And then there's all the other tools that are required by the end points of payments in order to, to, to decide what you have to pay and when you have to pay it and whether or not it's the right person that you're paying and, and all that kind of stuff. So it is, it is really the next major opportunity. That totally makes sense. And I, I mean, I think, what, I think this kind of leads in really well to what you're thinking about, right? So we just set this context for a world where increasingly the payment infrastructure and then obviously the bank inter- tools that interface with the payment structure all speak this kind of open, uniform language. It's built in by default and increasingly the, the applications that serve businesses directly are hopefully going to speak this language and, and more natively build use cases that can support this taking advantage of this deep end-to-end context, right, between two yep. counterparties. So in that world, as we start to play that out, I mean, I think this is what what you spent a little bit of time thinking about before today, which is like, well, then, so so what, right, if I'm the bank? In this world, what do I do to be, you know, to really thrive, take advantage of this um, and, you know, sort of build the future for my clients and profit? So, yeah. So I think the the big opportunity for whether it's banks or new entrants is um, whether you want to call it embedded finance for corporates or banking as a service for corporates, transaction banking as a service for corporates. I think that's the, the, I think that's the big opportunity, right? The idea that I, as a bank can provide, um, API based access to my services for my corporate clients or my small business clients is sort of level one. And when I say level one, what I mean is on the corporate side, you're getting um, a bunch of benefits of integration, greater control, greater visibility on your financial services. For the bank, the opportunity is now my systems are tightly integrated with my customer's business process, which means it's really hard to shake them out. And that's very cool. Um, the second order of opportunity then is, you know, banks are these natural um, nodes for all kinds of interest, interesting industry um, information, trends, patterns, this kind of thing that sometimes corporates don't have unless they're, you know, Walmart don't have on their own. So the idea that a bank can not only give let's call it a physical world council to how our markets evolving for their customers, but rather data and overlay services on top of that data to help their businesses find new opportunities, innovate faster, um, find new products and services. That's the, that's the real kicker. And, you know, to, Going back to an example that that you know we had um, the head of the international payments from ADP on a, a webinar that we did a while ago, and one of the things he said is, you know, as a result of embracing this new infrastructure, 
we have been able to go into markets that we otherwise couldn't go into a lot faster. We've been able to unbundle our services. And, and it has caused us to change the way in which we choose our banking partners. So some banking partners, one, because they were efficient at delivering this, and others lost because they were inefficient at delivering this. So that's that's interesting. So they were selecting banking partners on kind of the robustness and the availability of these kind of modern contextual payment it's capabilities. Ro- robustness, availability, and to a degree, insights. Right. It wasn't. It was another company um, that talked to us, and they said, "Look, we don't we don't want a banking partner that does payments." We want a banking partner that's in payments, that has a vision for where our business can go as a result of these new technologies. Do you think that that attitude is unique to certain types of businesses? And I I guess what I mean by that, maybe I'll say it a different way. What I've noticed is one of the most, I think, profound trends that's changing sort of banking is there are there's just a new class of businesses right there are these businesses that exist today that very early on are operating in multiple markets um you know are much more likely to have some kind of a marketplace dynamic themselves where they both pay in and pay money out in lots of different currencies quite early on right and so their like transaction banking type complexity is just orders of magnitude greater than what a business historically would have had at that scale, like 20 years ago, right? Because the world is changing. And so is it is it the rise of those, like, are these the early adopters who are having this conversation with you and, and engaged in a movement? Or do you think this is starting to like filter into more plain vanilla corporates or, you know, more traditional businesses? Um, I think there's leaders and laggards in every industry. Um, I do think that, you know, the pace of innovation in financial services, let alone the pace of innovation in customer experience outside of financial services, gives any potential banking customer a desire to have a more efficient relationship, a more digital relationship. Um, But that said, you know, right now, it still requires significant investments on on both sides. So, you know, we've seen um, greater interest in folks who make a lot of payments, right? Insurance industry, um, tax authorities, things like this, who recognize that just a very minor improvement in efficiency will have a major impact for them. Um, but even, you know, at the small business end, I've got a, a good friend who's who's a, a very um, a busy consultant, and she'll often complain about the need to uh, issue invoices via QuickBooks and then deal with payments in her bank. And her question is, well, why can't they just be in one place? Why do I need multiple places? I want, you know, I don't make any money by doing the administration of invoicing. Can't I just issue an invoice directly from my bank? That strikes me as a really good encapsulation of the 
mac of the sort of macro trend here and i i think you hinted at it before right there's stuff that walmart has and they have access to in their finance department that um certainly your friend is like a solo entrepreneur or as a, a small shop entrepreneur is never doesn't have and maybe he's never going to have and what i think is going to happen here with this stuff as you standardize this and uh edge applications that serve businesses better or you know consume this kind of banking as a service stuff and it becomes more integrated what you're ultimately getting is an effect where you're at least one 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 level of sophistication at a time, bringing things that only corporates would have had down market, and maybe to the nth degree, it comes to a point where the financial tools and services that are available to a solo entrepreneur like that are just as good as like what a really large corporation has set up for themselves with the same level of automation today. But they did it by you know spending six million dollars on SAP. Yeah, I don't think that's quite enough, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's well, I actually think about it the other direction, which is that um, a big piece of fintech, a big piece of the investment thesis that that I operated with as a VC is there was a secular trend that said whether you are an, a consumer or you are a an individual inside of a large corporation, you want all of the technology you, you touch to work like one click ordering on Amazon or ordering a taxi on Uber or um, swiping on Tinder, what, whatever it is, right? You want it, you know, technology should deliver a delightful end user experience to you, right? Um, it's one of the things that that was that made you know, Amazon great was one click to pay or the reason for, for PayPal to show up. So it, you know, the customer expectation started on the consumer end and has been working its way back into the corporate end. These large corporates have the scale that the kind of investment that's necessary when there is no common infrastructure like ISO 20022 they're the ones that can get a payback on, you know, investing in all that automation. But what's going to happen is as there is more and more standardized stuff, just going back to exactly what, what you were talking about earlier, it will be easier and easier to get the exact customer experience you want anywhere along that, that from, you know, solopreneur to Walmart chain. And those customers are going to want to work with financial services partners that can deliver on that dream. And that's why I think banking as a service for corporates is a, just a giant opportunity. I don't know if, if you're aware, but Goldman, having nothing to do with this, this research, right? they've got an API-only transaction banking offer now. Right? They took what they learned about bringing a new service to market with Goldman, and now they have a transaction banking via API offer. Goldman's never been a transaction. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to have a 200-year-old top-tier brand and have no legacy infrastructure and be able to enter a line of business like that. It's it, in, Indeed, indeed.
And I'm also, I'm also reasonably um, enthused for startups that are beginning to work in this space in terms of the other big banks who don't move on this opportunity. They're going to have to buy their way into the opportunity. I, I guess how many opportunities are there going to be, right? Because what we do know is if there's 13,000 banks or whatever it is in the United States, there's probably not 13,000 seats at this table, right? There's probably room for a few people to do this very well. Um, well, I think the way that the financial services industry will reorganize is still, you know, of question at, you know, from our, from when I was doing venture investment, the thesis was banks are never going away. They're regulated entities. They help make economies operate. Um, and so you may get some consolidation based on, um, some new economics, which could be technology economics, but you're, they're not going to go away. Would you see um, a bank become better at this technology stuff and then decide to be a wholesaler to, say, community institutions? Sure. No reason that that kind of thing wouldn't happen. Would you see, um, you know, like J.P. Morgan built a um, J.P. Morgan Chase, excuse me, built a open source core. And they've started um, allowing third-party banks to use that core. Now, what, are they going to provide counterparty services? You betcha. Will that be a nice little walled garden for them? You betcha. But there's there's plenty of space when you consider um, that there's the, if you will, the manufacturing of the financial products. There's the manufacturing of the technology experience, and then there's distribution of both. You know, there's there's a a wonderful piece um, written. Uh, it's a deck written by a guy named Frank Rotman at QED Ventures. Or Q, QED Ventures, yeah, on the Copernican Revolution in banking. And I recommend any of the listeners go. Right, he made it freely available on his blog. And it is a wonderful look into how might this industry reorganize itself around, you know, who owns the brand, who owns the technology, who owns the manufacturing of particular financial products. No, I mean, check that out. Uh, they've always struck me as a very uh, thoughtful uh, fintech investor. Um, so just, I guess, kind of thinking back to this from if I'm sitting here from the bank's perspective, listening to what you're saying, it all makes sense. It also is all like where to start, right? So, like, what's the if I'm you know if I'm amped up, right? Uh, based on what knowledge Mike has just dropped on me, the knowledge bombs exploded. What what would you <laughs> what would you suggest they do tomorrow, right? Like when they walk into the office tomorrow, what how would you start building towards a world where your institution was you know best positioned to excel in this highly contextual, highly dataful? highly integrated future world of financial services. Um, so I want to acknowledge that actually, if you're in an, an incumbent institution, going after this stuff is not easy. And it's not because the, the technology or even the concepts are pretty hard, but you do have a lot of legacy technology. You've got a lot of legacy business model, right? You've got a, a lot embedded in your brand. So it's hard to think about how this kind of change might impact you. So I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so one of my favorite places to start when I work with, with banks 
is to just show them what's actually going on in fintech, in embedded banking or embedded finance, in banking as a service. So, you know, going out and looking at the investment research on how much money is pouring in to these these companies that are doing things differently. You can go to CB Insights, for example, and you can get a uh, report, quarterly report on where investments are going in fintech. Again, for free. So I'd, I'd start with getting a sense of what the innovators are doing because that they're the ones who are thinking what's possible if you were starting with a, with a blank page. I'd also probably do, do some reading about how some of the you know, giant internet incumbents are thinking about this stuff, right? Um, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Google, all of them are somewhere involved in financial services. They're not doing it, in my, in my estimation, because they want to be banks. It's because they know that financial services is the grease to making the rest of their business model work. And as far as they're concerned, if they can't get the financial services that support their business model, they'll build it themselves. So those are the two places to start with is what is what are the what's the venture community investing in and what are the digital leaders doing and starting with that, because that's really going to open your eyes to what's possible, not what's probable, but what's possible. Second step is to go ahead. I, mean, I don't know if you I was just going to say, I think. Yeah, no, I was just going to say that's a really good point around the the. The, the internet incumbents, like nobody wants to be a bank, right? Everything, every time you feel like they're encroaching on your space, it's more out of frustration than out of like malice or desire to be a bank. It's a, to your point, it's a need to create the means to whatever end they're trying to create for their customer. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I There's a story I like to tell. I had um, three different banks come visit me in Silicon Valley um, to talk about startups. Um, and I asked them, well, you know, how was your, how was your trip to the West coast? They were, they were the largest banking brands in their countries. They were outside the U S how was your trip? Who did you see? What did you learn? That kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, we went and visited, um, Amazon to try and sell them payment services in our country. And this is paraphrasing, but Basically, Amazon, when they sat down with them, asked them a single question, which was, how many milliseconds does it take to complete a payment? They didn't ask them about security. They didn't ask them about balance sheet. They didn't, all they cared about was the amount of time it took to finish the payment. And most of the banks turned up to me and said, well, why did they ask that? Why was that what they asked? I said, well, what happened? when when you answered or didn't answer and they said well we didn't have an answer and we asked why do you want to know that and they asked us to leave and the reason that amazon cares about that is because they know the length of time it takes for a shopping transaction to complete is directly correlated to the size of the shopping basket so they have no interest in what a financial services company thinks is important they only think about what they think their customers think are important. So, so overnight was not an acceptable answer. No, 
Not so much. <laughs> Not so much. So, no, I think, yeah. I think great. I know. I think there's a great anecdote. I think it kind of captures the spirit, the spirit of that uh, quite well. Um, One of the things on that note, many other banks to remember is that. Many of their customers are kind of nervous about what companies like Amazon will do to their business. So how do you make your customers who may have to compete with companies like Amazon more competitive? Great banking as a service is your responsibility as a bank. I think, I think that's an interesting point. I think it's in, it opens up all kinds of interesting things. I mean, obviously part of this uh, Goldman offering and their work with Stripe is entirely designed around supporting the merchants in that Shopify ecosystem, um, giving them the tools to succeed. But I don't know if you caught wind of it. This is the big thing in Canada. Like, what a firm paid for carriage of their service on the Shopify's platform is just insane. Like the the table stakes to be a financial service provider in those grade A. Um, ecosystem aggregators today is like mind-boggling right like that was it's effectively billion dollar tax multi-billion dollar tax they paid in a firm warrant oh <laughs> without a doubt right it's it it's nuts but this is you know there's there's i i don't want to report the whole story but i'd advise your listeners go do some internet research on what the relationship between goldman and apple looked like around the apple card and why Goldman made the investments they did to support it. But the fact of the matter is, is that Apple's brand is a hell of a lot more powerful and better loved than any bank brand. And that's a really different situation than it's ever been when these non-financial brands have the mind share of the financial customers. I I think that's I think that's a, a, a really good point, um, and and maybe maybe that's the point to sort of end on in terms of a serious note is that I mean I think that's the real theme of what we're talking about here because I mean what, where we started was deep in the bowels of the infrastructure of of how money and data move moving is changing and it's changing in a really positive way that's going to accrue to everybody in the value chain, but ultimately it's going to fundamentally change how good and impactful and intuitive and helpful these services that that we create or these experiences that we create for users are and ultimately that's all that matters at the end of the day right the why of why dig into and evangelize these arcane plumbing standards is because that's the only way to have the best version of this future right to have the zero you know zero latency transaction clearing at checkout and do that stuff is by fixing this and then kind of building towards these you know this deep empathy for what the customer wants and needs i believe that to be the case awesome well maybe just on a quick note just to maybe transition to a bit more of a fun closing question i am curious what the uh What's the dumbest thing you've ever done, Mike, that later turned out to be a good idea? So my first venture into startup land was before I graduated from college. And we did a clip art company. 
Um, so pre-drawn images to be used in digital formats. And along the way, um, we got asked to do some clip, some artwork, digital artwork for an online game platform, uh, the Atari Lynx. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that, that, that platform, but that led, um, ultimately to, uh, our lead programmer and our two lead designers, graphic artists, uh, to create a company called Blizzard Entertainment. And so the dumbest thing I did was not follow through on that business. <laughs> and the smartest <laughs> thing that, that the folks, the great people that we had hired and surrounded ourselves did was, you know, create Diablo and World of Warcraft. Yeah, I was, I was just going to confirm. So this is the Blizzard the video game company that you've seen on the covers of all the boxes at, at GameStop. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's the one. So I can't. Right. We, I, we didn't get into that business. They went on and did it. And man, did they kill it. Uh, entrepreneurship is insane. Um, it's just wild how it, it, you're doing one thing and the universe whispers some tangential opportunity into your ear. Indeed. Indeed. Awesome. Anyway. Uh, well, that's, that's a, that's a fun story. Um, Cool. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time. I, I really appreciate it. I know we've been trying to get this on the books for a while. I'm glad, glad we did. Um, I think it's good for the world to hear a little bit about the work you guys are doing with the with the lab stuff and, and trying to sort of evangelize for this thing that I think is just fundamentally going to be transformational to a, a whole bunch of different dimensions. So appreciate that. Um, appreciate everybody for tuning in and listening, as always. Um, really appreciate you sort of taking the moment to subscribe and uh, on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, also, I guess, share the episode with a friend if you think it's going to be useful. Any comments, questions, concerns, uh, never hesitate to email info at fispan.com. It's uh, F-I-S-P-A-N.com. And uh, thanks again, Mike. Really appreciate having you on the show. Hey, my pleasure. Um, just for what it's worth, there's a bunch of information on our website. It's freely available about some of this thinking, that's 20022labs.com. That's awesome. Thanks Thanks for sharing that. And I must say, for ISO being an organization that is all about quality standards, it is the hardest to remember name for a standard ever. You think they could have just picked five random numbers, and then at least <laughs> you could remember the order, at least for me. That's, no. Especially... Uh, Especially because it's twenty oh two two has same, a major marketing yeah. challenge. Right. Yeah, no, and our our organization happens to be compliant with both it and ISO twenty seven thousand and two, which has too many of the same numbers in it for me to get my 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 head straight. So, anyways, thanks again. Um, uh, thanks everybody for listening, and uh, we'll see you next time.